Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. Get right into this. So we are moving into Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be reading the first six verses. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Bow your heads with me, if you would. Father, uh, this is your word, your perfect word, and we are thankful that, um, that we have such readily, just are so readily accessible to this word, and that uh, there are those in this world who are not that fortunate. So, Father, allow us to be grateful for that, and also I ask as we move into our message this morning that you would uh, bless this time together, that everything that would be spoken would be glorifying to you, edifying to the body for its building up. And Father, I pray right now that you would utilize me, use my voice, Holy Spirit, to speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have reached the halfway mark. We have arrived at the halfway mark through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Six chapters, and we have covered now effectively three chapters. Now, at the very beginning of this study, as we began to look at the book of Ephesians, I introduced to you that this book could basically be uh, divided into half. The first three chapters and the last three chapters. The first three chapters are dedicated to what is basically known as doctrinal or theological unity. The last three chapters Paul is going to be dedicating to practical unity. So we are moving from a a couple terms that I want you to be familiar with. You don't have to know them, but I definitely want to introduce them to you, and I want you to be be aware of the concept Uh, not only in Ephesians, but throughout the remainder, especially of Paul's writings. But we're moving from implicit instruction to imperative instruction here in this passage. And let me me just kind of give you a practical example of what that means. Implicit instruction is basically Paul is just stating truth. He's stating fact. He is making statements that are true, period. So basically an example of an implicit statement would be, this is a music stand. Okay? This is a music stand. That's an implicit statement. So it's making a statement of fact, a statement of truth. Now we're moving into the last half of this book, which is an imperative writing, which means that you take the implicit and then you put action behind it. So it becomes imperative. So this truth that this music stand has now reached a level to where we're going to be given some instruction. So an imperative would be, this 
is a music stand and it needs to be moved. So there's a command there. There's an action that's required. And what Paul is doing is he is transitioning this out of the first three chapters where he's given us implicit truths. Now he's saying, now you have to do something about them. Now this is on you. Because if you go back and you review the first three chapters that we've covered, there have not been any imperative statements as far as commands that this is what you do with it. Now we've looked at them from a practical standpoint. And there are practical applications and lessons that we've learned from these first three chapters. But now Paul, in his writing style, has laid it out as like, this is truth. This is statement of fact. This is what God has done. This is what he's doing. And now he's moving into this place. And here's what it means to you. Here's what it means in your life and what you need to do with it. Now, I also want to remind us, encourage us, and kind of nudge us a little bit to understand that when Paul writes, especially uh, to these letters to the churches, he writes with the whole church in mind. So he's not writing to an individual person, but he writes through the lens of the church as a body first. Now, there are applications there are lessons, there are truths that apply and impact or should impact us on an individual level, but that's not Paul's purpose for writing. He's writing to the church body as a whole. Now, you've heard us say before that, you know, the capital C church is the lower C church. Okay? The capital C church, what we mean is God's church worldwide, all believers, all Christians, all brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the capital C church from a holistic view. The, the small C church is what we refer to when we're talking to, about and referring to individual bodies, individual churches. Like First Church of Christ in Grayson is a church, lowercase c. But that does not take away from the fact that we are a family. Amen? You're not just a conglomeration of weirdos that God's put together. I mean, we kind of are, but it's not just that, okay? You're not just a conglomeration of people that God has assembled together just so we can meet once a week, maybe twice a week if we get crazy and radical, become Jesus freaks, and actually come back on a Sunday night, okay? But he's put us together so that we could walk as brothers and sisters, as family. So the people that you see in this building here this morning are more than just people that you go to church with. As a believer in Jesus Christ, they are now your family. And if we're viewing church any other way other than family, then we're not viewing it from a biblical perspective. The church is a really big deal to God. Church is a really big deal to God, and it needs to be a really big deal to us. And I think that we've lost the value of the fellowship, the church, and the family that we're a part of. Because this is, and, and, and I love you, but this church is not about you. And I hope you love me, but guess what? This church is not about me. This church is about Jesus Christ. This church is about his bride. 
And it needs to be important to us. Our commitment to this place needs to be important to us. It needs to be a value to us. I'm trying not to go on a soapbox here. I'm trying really, really hard not to go on a soapbox. But I had somebody ask me the other day, they said, what does the church mean to you? How important is the church to you? Because we were having this conversation, they said, we find it somewhat difficult to understand why you have committed your whole life to serving a church and serving a body and serving a system where most people view it as rather optional. And I told him, I said, the, the important thing, it, it doesn't matter what the church is to me. The important thing is what the church is to God. So the next time you're thinking about church, don't think about it about what you think church is or what it should be or what's, you know, any of that. Think about it in the terms of ask yourself, what does the church mean to God? And that's kind of what Paul's getting ready to move into to give us instruction on. You know, I, I've talked to so many people throughout the years, and they, you know, they talk about how the church is full of hypocrites, how the church is judgmental, how the church is all of these negative things. And you know what? They're exactly right. Because I, I hate to burst your bubble, but if First Church was a perfect church when I came in here almost seven years ago, guess what? It ceased being a perfect church the moment I walked through the doors. If none of the rest of you fall into a hypocritical or judgmental at time box, then guess what? Your pastor does. Hate to if any of you had me on a pedestal thinking I wasn't those things, I'm sorry. But I think that if we're all honest and all transparent, we all struggle with those things. And you get this, well, I love God, but I can't stand his church. I'm okay with God, but I don't like the church. They're full of hypocrites, full of judgmental people. I don't like it. You know, think about it for this. Okay, let's say, okay, Jacob, <laughs> I'm not going to draw you up front this time. Don't worry, buddy, all right? He, he gets this panic look now. You bring somebody up front once, and they're like. So let's say Jacob and I are having a conversation. All right? And Jacob looks at me and goes, you know what, Ben? You're all right, man. I love you. You're, you're a good guy, but you know, I can't stand Kim. She's a hypocrite. She's judgmental. She buys way too much Ray Dunn. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not. It's an inside thought, not supposed to come out. <laughs> Don't worry, Chad, I won't tell her that you told on her. Okay. <laughs> but anyhow, that relationship, how do you think that's going to go? I'll be like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> I don't like her either. <laughs> Could that be how God thinks about us when we come to him and say, you know, God, I'm all right with you. I love you. Hate your bride, though. Can't stand your bride. So as we step into this passage of Scripture, understand that Paul is giving direction to the church as a whole. Now, we will draw out things that are going to be very applicable to us individually and us personally and our households and our families, but know that, ver that chapters 4, 5, and 6 all are funneled through the lens of his body, of his church. And you see that 
in Paul's writings, especially if you go beyond Ephesians, you will see it in Ephesians, but you also see it in Galatians, in Philippians, in Thessalonians, in Romans. You see it all over the place. In Corinthians, in all of his writings, Paul refers to the church as a body. He, he refers to it more as a body than what he does call it the actual church. So let me ask you this question. In light of that, what part of your body could you lose that would not cause pain or some type of permanent adjustment and inconvenience to your life? Anyone? Any of the medical professionals in here in the house this morning, is there a part of our body that we could lose that's not going to hurt us or cause some sort of compromise for the rest of our lives? Your appendix? That's not going to hurt. I mean, I know they got some anesthetics and stuff, but all right, don't need it out of there. The church is a big deal. The body is a big deal. And God has ordained us. He's placed us. He's placed you in this body for a reason. And guess what? This church needs you. This church needs you. Why? Because this community that's broken, that's lost, that's hurting, needs this church. Amen? Our community needs FCC to be a healthy church. So let's begin to look at what Paul is talking about here as he makes this transition Moving away from the implicit statement to the imperative, here is what you do with this, because he's told us some things. And we're going to look at three things in common really quickly this morning. And, um, and, and the first one is going to be uh, found in verse 1, where he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So to walk in a manner worthy or to live in a manner worthy, Paul is saying now there's some action required. You can't walk without movement. You can't walk without effort. And this is what Paul's saying. Now you need to walk worthy. You need to live worthy. But let's pump the brakes real quick and let's make sure we understand. He's not talking about walking worthy in ways that our works make us worthy. We need to do what Christ has commanded, but we don't need to look at anything that we do as something that qualifies us, because it's only the blood of Jesus that qualifies us. Amen? Can you agree with me on that? That it's not any work of righteousness, it's not any work of good, it's not any work of decency or morality that I can do. It is the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ, Him buried, resurrected, ascended, and alive today. That is the work. I need to walk worthy of that. You need to walk worthy of that. And understand, he's writing to the church here, so he's telling the church, walk worthy of this calling. So what's the calling? You know, because I, if, if I asked somebody, and I kind of went around the office this week and kind of did this, if I ask somebody about what, what's the first thing in mind, what's the first question that comes to mind when you talk about calling? And usually, each and every one of us have this, well, I wonder what my calling is. Right? We kind of individualize it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, again, Paul is writing to a church here. He's writing to a body of believers. So, walk worthy of this 
calling. So what's the calling? Well, it's a common calling that I think that Paul has talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. When he was talking about live a holy and blameless life, live a life of redemption, live a life of inheritance, live a life of unity, live a life in the fullness of God, live a life in surrender to him, and live a life that's alive because we were once dead, but through Jesus Christ, we were made alive. That's what he's telling us to walk worthy of. That's the common calling that all of us have, that we walk in our inheritance. We walk holy. We walk blameless. We walk through redemption. We walk in unity with each other. And then he gives us a little bit of an idea about how to do that. So we've got the common calling. Now he's going to talk about the common character. And he does that, and he begins to do that in verse 2. With all humility with all gentleness, with patience, and bearing with one another in love. You see, there's a common character that we need to show and we need to have as a church. And yes, those who compromise the church, we need to have these as well. But see that we are part of a body, a local body, a church body, church family and we have a common calling which paul articulated chapters one through three and now we should be walking together with a common character of humility peace and this bearing of, 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 in love with one another so walk worthy of this common calling and the three you know, the four basic things here is walk with humility, walk in gentleness, walk in patience, and bear each other in love. And then he moves on, and he begins to talk about, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, it's capital S, Spirit, in here, so that means God's Holy Spirit. Notice the wording here. Paul does not say, strive to create unity. He doesn't say, get together, find something that you agree upon, and then build on unity from there. Paul says, maintain unity. Maintain unity the unity that is already amongst you. And what's that? It's His Holy Spirit. Right? That is the definite thing that we all have in common as brothers and sisters, as believers. If you've turned your heart, if you've surrendered it to Jesus Christ, you're living a repentant lifestyle, you've confessed, you've accepted Him as your Lord and Savior, you've been baptized, and you're walking with Him you have His Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And each and every one of us who are believers have that same Spirit. So we don't dictate the terms of unity. We don't create the terms of unity. And we don't establish the grounds of unity. What we do is we operate from unity. And that's how we live our lives as family. And he goes on here in verses 4 through 6, 
and he begins to go on this. Paul kind of articulates a, a little bit of a kind of a creed here, kind of a um, you know, he's going into this thing that the churches can be built on of kind of reducing it down to that irreducible minimal, you know, minimum statement. And this is what he says. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're part of one body. And see, and this is Paul really funneling this down because, again, we can't take these passages and only view them as standalone passages because Paul has been building to this point. We've seen and we've talked about so many times in verses or in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that Paul is laying the groundwork of what Christ has done for us. And it's only through Christ that these things are done for us. And then he begins to talk about this unity because they're struggling. Remember, they're struggling. They've got the Jew and Gentile issue. They've got this problem that they're having difficulty coming together in unity and in family and in their church. They're, they're struggling with this. Remember we covered back in Acts 12 and Acts 15 a couple weeks ago about this, this vision that Peter had of this sheep being lowered down and three times Jesus, you know, the Lord said to him, it had all kinds of creatures on it, both clean and unclean, common and uncommon. And the Lord spoke to him and says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter, dependent upon his own works, dependent upon his own obedience, was saying in, in Acts chapter 12, God, far be it from me, because nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I have, I have held that law. I have held that close to my heart, and I have kept it. I've been obedient to it. Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the command stayed the same until the Lord spoke and said, What I call clean, don't call unclean. He's basically making that statement of, I created it. I determine it. You're not the one who determines it. And then you go to Acts chapter 15, and we see the account of the Jerusalem council. And basically what that problem is, is they're all meeting because all of these churches are having this influx of Gentiles, which is not Jewish people. Every other possible race and ethnicity and background and social status and economic status could possibly be made up. They're having this influx of these people with so many different backgrounds, and they're like, we don't know what to do with them. What do, do, they, do they eat? Do they not eat? Do they do, do circumcision? Not circ what, what's, what, what do we do? And then Peter has this moment, kind of like this epiphany moment, of when he remembers what happened in Acts chapter 12, when it's like, whatever God puts before you, don't worry whether you think it's clean or unclean, common or uncommon, true or not true, acceptable or unacceptable. If God puts it before you, then he has already made the determination. We are simply to do what God has commanded us to do with it. Amen? Everybody good? We still awake? We still good? Okay. I'm just waiting on something to be thrown with me. I'm keeping an eye on the clock because you know, it would be a shame if I got long-winded this morning. <laughs> That one won't stick with me at all. So we have to make sure that we're seeing this. 
that Paul is now writing this passage, this list of ones, as kind of a culmination of the teaching that he's been given us for the first three chapters. So let's read it again with that in mind that he has been talking about this unity amongst diversity. There is one body. So Paul's making this statement that even though you look different, even though you may act different, even though your backgrounds are different, even though sometimes your value systems are different, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are one body. And one spirit. Notice again, capital S on this word spirit. So that means the same spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Regardless of how different they are from you, they have the same spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope, that one hope, Jesus Christ, is the same hope that I have, it's the same hope that you have, is the same hope that every man and woman who has ever walked this earth, who will ever walk this earth, and who is walking this earth currently, that is the hope that we have. Nothing else but Jesus. One Lord. It's Jesus Christ. Capital L. Jesus. One faith. We all share in the same faith that it's through Christ, through his sacrifice, through his atonement, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that we have a hope of eternity in heaven with God. One faith. One baptism. That's his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That is that filling of God's Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. One God and Father of all. There's no other God. There's no other micro-gods. There's no other mini-gods. There's one God, period. And that's God the Father. And it's who is over all and through all and in all. So maintain the unity. What unity? That unity right there. One body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one God. That's the unity that we have. That's the foundation of it. That's what we maintain. That's what we build. That's, that's what our relationship's built on. Let me ask you this. How many times in your history, in your church history, not doesn't have to be just this one, but have you seen or experienced when other churches or churches, period, have division and break fellowship, split, over things that aren't listed on this list. We are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We need to be sensitive to God's Holy Spirit that's within us. And when I view you as my brothers and sisters, when I view you as my family, I cannot allow the enemy to use division, to use these areas of differences, to use the things that we may disagree on. I cannot allow him 
to place a wedge and place distance in our relationship. Because when that happens, when there's division in the church, when there's dissension in the church, that's not walking worthy of the call that God has, has placed on us. It's not walking worthy of that calling of blameless and holy lives, of walking in an inheritance, of walking in a life of redemption, of walking in a life of dependence on Jesus Christ, and walking a life in unity. See, what Paul's doing now is he's saying that I've told you for the first three chapters. I've told you the truth. I've made the statements. I've not argued them, not defended them, not given you a dissertation on them. I've just told you the truth. Now it's time that you do something with the truth that I've declared. And I think that's the same thing that he's calling us to today, church, is that we've spent several months now Having Paul tell us, this is the truth. These are the implicit statements. Now it's time for you to walk with them. It's time for you to do something about it. I want to ask the praise team if they would to come back up. And I want to read you um, this, this statement. Um, I've, I've seen two or three different sources of it, so I'm just going to allow the, the author of this. I'll just say it's unknown because it's given credit to three or four different places. But I believe that this is particularly relevant and impactful for us today in, in the culture that we live in, especially from a political standpoint. And they make this statement. They said, we should be far more comfortable around another believer in which we disagree with politically than what we are with someone who is not a believer who we do agree with politically. That we should be more comfortable and more unified with someone who is a brother or sister in Christ that may differ from us in our political thoughts rather than be more comfortable with those who we agree with politically who may not be a believer. Because what we're supposed to be built on is that one Lord, or is that one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, Father of all. Pray with me this morning.